Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. In this episode, this is another one of our little grab bag Q&A kind of episodes. So we're starting off with an update on the coronavirus and COVID-19 because uh, as you might have seen, the case counts have been rising across the country and I've had some people asking uh, if there was any updated information and literature Uh, about what we know about the virus, what all it does, that sort of thing, because as of this point, we've been studying it for almost a year, Uh, not quite, but almost. Uh, We're also going to talk about growth hormone and how you can increase your growth hormone naturally and biohack your growth hormone levels to help continue to make strength and uh, body composition gains and all of that at home with your home workouts, even though you might not have access to a gym and weights and the ability to progressively overload, which is something, as you know, I'm very big on. We're going to end by talking about ACL tears in women and specifically the role that estrogen and the menstrual cycle plays in that. And this is obviously not a topic that I have any experience with because I am a male. However, uh, in physical therapy, we talk about ACL tears in women quite often because as you know, they're much more common uh, in women than than they are in men. We see over 400,000 uh, ACL issues per year. So that's a lot of ACL tears and pathologies. And I was amazed at how few people knew the role of estrogen and what that does in uh, ACL tear incidents. So we're going to shed a little light on that today. So diving right in here to our first topic, looking at the coronavirus. Uh, so As you might have seen, there was a July study published in uh, JAMA's Journal of Cardiology, which as you may know, JAMA is a pretty uh, good ranking group there. So the article I'm currently referencing is Outcomes of Cardiovascular MRI on Patients Recently Recovered from COVID-19. And this was published end of July, early August. This got a lot of views. I think the number on their uh, the JAMA website directly was close to a million views on this. And what they found in this study was a lot of people who um, had COVID-19, tested positive, that sort of thing, had myocarditis. Up to 60% of people had myocarditis. And myocarditis is inflammation of the heart. So there was inflammation and, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to detect most of the time, but usually presents with things like shortness of breath, maybe a little chest pain, that sort of thing, right? Well, what's interesting is we know now that coronavirus is much worse in people with systemic inflammation and chronic inflammation. What do I mean by that? 
if you are someone who is living with a chronic disease, such as diabetes, obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, or if you have any of these other things like leaky gut, leaky gut um, so gut permeability issues, um, possibly candida overgrowth, all these different health factors, uh, they result in increased levels of inflammation throughout your body, and the virus is significantly worse in people who have these issues. And this is part of the reason I think America struggles so much with this virus is we are not a healthy nation. Uh, you've heard me talk multiple times before how our overweight and obesity rate based on BMI is somewhere around 70% of our population. And we have models that project that number is going to be over 95% within the next 20 to 30 years. So coming very soon, which is kind of concerning uh, from our standpoint in health and fitness and physical therapy, because the best medicine you can give is prevention and lowering your risk for different diseases and pathologies. But essentially, this inflammation is key because if your body is in an inflamed state and it's not just people who have different chronic diseases, uh, it's also healthy people in some cases. Some people exercise excessively too much and then their body is inflamed attempting to recover from it. You know, you can overdo anything and it's much easier to overdo being unhealthy than it is to overdo being healthy. But, you know, if you're someone who's clocking in an hour and a half, two hours at the gym every day, doing, you know, an hour or two of cardio, if you're working out for four plus hours a day, six, seven days a week, not giving your body a chance to properly recover, then I would imagine your inflammation levels are going to be significantly higher due to the amount of muscle damage and breakdown that you're causing. And this is why we emphasize the importance of proper eating and nutrition and diet. Uh, we talk about recovery a lot, foam rolling, red light, massage gun, uh, mobility, that sort of thing. So inflammation, big problem with it is when your body is in an inflamed state, what happens? Think about um, your gut, for example. When your gut is inflamed, it gets leaky. So what I mean by that is you eat food and your gut normally acts with a barrier kind of system uh, with, through these gap junctions and tight junctions within it that kind of prevent things from getting out where they shouldn't. So then your gut can selectively absorb what it needs. So it takes out vitamins and minerals and protein and all these other essential things that your body needs. Well, it doesn't absorb, you know, other things like sugar alcohol. Sugar alcohol is indigestible. Uh, well, if your gut is leaky, what happens, uh, and this is as a result of inflammation, uh, there's ties with this to gluten and high carbohydrate diets. And that's a key argument that uh, paleo and ketogenic diet people make uh, is this tie to gut health. Essentially, inflammation will expand those junctions and allow things to pass through into the body that shouldn't be there. So as a result, you know, you're getting stuff that your body doesn't want in places where it doesn't normally belong. And your body doesn't usually react too well to that. Uh, there's a lot of other studies that even link 
high levels of inflammation, so chronic inflammation, to a whole host of variety of other disorders. Uh, you might have seen me share on the Instagram story the other day, there's a lot of ties right now between diabetes, which, as you know, is a huge issue in our country, type 1 and type 2. Um, huge tie from that to uh, Alzheimer's and other neurological diseases. And we know that issues with your blood sugar uh, impact your brain and its uh, ability to clear itself out and clean itself up. And what happens is you get these abnormal protein accumulations in your brain when it can't clean itself up. So tau, beta amyloid plaques, all these different things uh, you might have heard about before uh, when CTE was a big thing in the country. Um, and obviously diabetes causes a whole host of other things too. Vascular, uh, number one cause for amputations in America, that sort of thing. So the point we're making is inflammation is very common chronically in millions and millions of people. They don't realize they're living with it because it's very easy to treat, right? You just take some NSAIDs, which, you know, they have side effects of their themselves. But when it comes back to COVID here, kind of going full circle here, COVID plays on this inflammation response. So we, we just said inf chronic inflammation is tied with other uh, diseases and disorders. Well, when your body is already in an inflamed state and it's trying to repair itself, this actually decreases your immunity and it makes it harder for your body to fight an infection. So when you have a whole new virus that enters your body, like the coronavirus, it's a lot harder for your body to try and fight it off and fend it off because it's already trying to repair itself from all these other things that are going on within it. You know, it's kind of like trying to drive a race car when you put the 87 octane fuel that you put in your sedan in it. The race car is not going to run at its maximum capacity if it doesn't have the right fuel. So if you don't fuel your body properly, it's not going to run and work and operate as it should. So then when something goes wrong, like you get this new virus, um, you know, you're exposed to it then your body is not going to fight it and respond as it should. So what happens, and the theory with the COVID, is it might be a little bit more of an autoimmunity tie. And what they mean by that is your body is already in an inflamed state. We've got this new virus, new pathogen in our body, and we need to get rid of it. Well, our body's immune system is essentially trying to, uh, it's kind of like swinging a sledgehammer to try and kill a fly on the wall. Eventually, you're going to get it, and it'll be fine, but in the process, odds are you're probably going to destroy a lot of stuff. And that's what they keep tying uh, the COVID back to from everything I've seen, is it's so hard for your body in so many people, and especially those with the severe cases, it's so hard for them to find the virus within their body, their immune system. It's hard for the immune system to recognize and find the virus. And then it's even harder to get rid of it because of the state of health that they are in. So as a result, you see damage to other parts of your body, like your heart, like your kidneys. Uh, you see all kinds of dysfunction there. So uh, that's kind of the latest theory from what I've seen from the literature, from the research, that sort of thing. And if you need links to any of these studies that I'm referencing, 
please uh, feel free to uh, let me know. Uh, one of the other key ones I referenced there was from the Journal of Autoimmunology, just published in, um, I think it was November of 2020. Uh, yeah, it was published in their November 2020 uh, journal, and it's called Autoinflammatory and Autoimmune Conditions at the Crossroad of COVID-19. Another great article there, so highly recommend looking into that. That's another one, open access, free online. You can look it up and pull it up and read the whole thing. Um, and they talk a little bit more about some of the other autoimmune conditions like Guillain-Barre and other things. I didn't really get into that because, you know, Guillain-Barre is not something that impacts as many people as other conditions such as obesity and diabetes and that sort of thing. Um, so that's our case saying that there is some type of autoimmune involvement, autoimmune elements within COVID-19. And again, it's best to be aware of that and be up to date on the inf information. We still don't have a whole big idea or clue of, you know, what all the virus is, all its different mechanisms, that sort of thing. We're still learning a lot. Uh, but again, it's still important to keep up to date with the latest theories and research because this will guide how you can live your life to better uh, accommodate for the condition. So obviously, if inflammation is such a big cause with the, vi with the virus, maybe you increase your consumption of various anti-inflammatory foods and other things, and maybe you avoid uh, some pro-inflammatory foods for a while. So things like sugars and vegetable oils, refined oils, refined carbs, that sort of thing. And obviously, avoiding those things and living a healthy lifestyle is not just going to help you reduce your risk of infection and reduce disease severity, but it's also going to sprinkle over into other aspects of your life. You're going to see improved body composition, improved energy, mental focus, alertness. I mean, the side effects of living a healthier lifestyle are nothing but positives here. And if you need any help with that, Again, we do personal training, we do consultations, we cover the whole range of services that you could need. We completely eliminate the guesswork for you. Head over to Instagram at brawnbody, brawn with a W. Send us a DM or email us at brawnbodytraining at gmail.com and we'll make sure you're hooked up. We will be announcing some new sales here in the near future, so make sure you take advantage of that. So next, on to growth hormone. So if you didn't know, growth hormone, or uh, some people call it somatotropin, uh, basically this hormone is responsible for proper growth and development, and we want it within a good range. We don't want too much of this because excessive amounts of growth hormone cause issues like you see in... Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen Andre the Giant. Uh, he might be before some of your times, but this dude lived up to his name. I mean, he was basically kind of like this real-life Hulk kind of figure uh, from excessive amounts of growth hormone, acromegaly. Uh, but we also can't have no growth hormone because growth hormone is essential for a variety of bodily functions. 
so there's a lot of talk too when you hear growth hormone about growth hormone supplements, especially with athletes, because growth hormone itself is a peptide hormone and its release helps increase your muscle mass, it reduces fat mass, and it helps to regulate your blood glucose. So these three key factors are things that most people are really after and looking for. Uh, it comes from your anterior uh, pituitary gland. I think we talked about that in our neuroscience podcast, so you can flip back to that if you need to. Um, but essentially, the um, whole premise of growth hormone is it's going to be lower during your childhood ages. Because think about it, when you're a kid, you're probably not walking around with tons of muscle mass and that sort of thing. And then when you hit puberty, it exponentially increases. And it's going to remain pretty high until you're about 30 years old. Uh, So, you know, they talk about being over the hill at 40. Um, At 30, you start to see a little bit of a decline. And then it gets exponential every decade after that. So big drop at 40. Uh, All kinds of fun things to look forward to with aging, right? Uh, And growth hormone itself can act directly on your body. But it also stimulates this other hormone called insulin-like growth factor. And insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1, is similar to insulin. This is where the insulin-like comes in. And the growth factor, similar to growth hormone, uh, this helps to reproduce and regenerate cells, especially those that have been damaged. So as such, that makes sense that you would want higher levels of uh, IGF-1 and growth hormone after exercise, especially to help your body uh, recover. And uh, there's even studies that show um, growth hormone is, uh, its main action is promoting cell differentiation and expansion. Uh, It helps to transport amino acids uh, throughout your body, uh, breaks down and mobilizes fat tissues, all that stuff that we already talked about. Um, Now, I mentioned growth hormone supplementation. Believe it or not, because your body can actually produce growth hormone itself and does so normally, the supplementation does more harm than good because you drive your growth hormone levels into those dangerous uh, zones for the most part. And whenever your body has too much of something, it has these built-in feedback loops that cause it to release or uh, reduce how much it produces. So if your body has too much growth hormone, it checks itself and says, okay, we need to reduce how much we're making. So we're back into a normal level, a normal range. And your body functions best in these normal ranges for everything, pH, oxygen level, carbon dioxide level, any hormone level. It's very good at regulating itself and keeping itself within a normal range. However, when we synthetically inject ourselves with artificial anabolic hormones, such as growth hormone, testosterone, the list goes on, uh, our body loses its ability to regulate itself because you keep putting more and more and more in and your body keeps telling itself, okay, we have to stop producing it, we have too much. We have to stop producing it, we have too much, right? Well, 
as a result of you putting in so much and your body telling itself to cut off the supply chain because there's too much within it, uh, your body's going to uh, lose or reduce its ability to produce these hormones on its own. So the research doesn't really hold up to the use of these hormones, uh, even for their benefits. Uh, There was one study that found growth hormone supplementation did not produce any uh, significant effects, muscle mass gain, fat loss, anything of the sort in healthy individuals. Now, there are cases for growth hormone supplementation in individuals who are deficient, but clearly that's a very different case. And there's also cases being made for the older individuals, uh, senior citizens, the elderly, receiving growth hormone and testosterone and other different supplement, uh, estrogen, um, other hormone type supplementations because they're deficient in it. And again, that makes sense. If you're low in something, you would provide some kind of supplement to uh, return it to normal levels. But for our purposes, Again, a lot of these hormones have a pretty wide range that they can function in. You just need to keep it within the range. And the best way to keep everything within its normal range is to let your body control it. Let your body be the master switchboard and the CEO. But there's certain things you can do on a daily basis that trigger your body and signal your body to release more growth hormone. And again, because it's your body regulating itself it's going to keep itself where it should be. Uh, So obviously first is exercise. You know, you wanna build muscle, you want to uh, burn body fat. Well, exercise is usually a good place to start, right? Now, what kind of exercise specifically are we going to be looking at? Because obviously there's all kinds of different uh, forms of exercise, especially lately, you know, should we be doing calisthenics? Should we be doing aerobic, whatever? Uh, So believe it or not, both aerobic and resistance exercise will significantly increase your growth hormone levels. uh, And it's, it's correlated with intensity. So the harder you work out, the more growth hormone you're going to release. Uh, It, There's a lot of research that shows, uh, and I even remember this from one of the classes I took, it was in our textbook, that trained runners have a faster growth hormone response when they start running than people who do not run. And people look at that and they're like, wait a second, runners, growth hormone, what? But think about it. We said growth hormone helps to break down and mobilize fat. Well, if you're a runner and you're running, you know, for a prolonged period of time, prolonged distance of time, then obviously you're going to need to break down fat and use it as fuel. So that makes sense. Now, with exercise specifically, there's some research that shows, um, or resistance training specifically, there's a lot of research that shows the eccentric portion is most important for Uh, the release of growth hormone. So there's one study I have up here. They looked at 10 males, healthy males. Uh, It was hormonal responses following eccentric exercise in humans. And I know you're probably um, coming off of that podcast from last week about, you know, good scientific evidence. And you're saying, okay, only 10 people. This is a small study. 
so what's going on? Um, I liked how they were all very similar demographic. So obviously you look at people of the same demographic and you're better able to uh, draw conclusions than you would be from looking at people of very different demographics and backgrounds. Uh, and in this study, they found that the eccentric phase of um, an exercise or any kind of movement or uh, that sort of thing is going to exponentially increase your growth hormone levels. Uh, other studies have shown up to 1300%, per so increasing 13-fold. And the reason in this study is the damaging that occurs to your muscles and uh, tenderness adaptations uh, to your muscle tendons that occur during eccentric activity. So as you may know, eccentric exercises promote collagen realignment and uh, strengthening, which is very good for your muscle tendons. Uh, in physical therapy, we use a lot of eccentrics for people with different tendinopathies, lateral epicondylitis, that sort of thing. Uh, but as you know, you're stronger in an eccentric than you are in the concentric. This is the lowering portion, the slowdown portion. Uh, so if you want to kind of biohack your workout to increase your growth hormone levels, focusing on that eccentric piece is going to be key. Uh, sleeping is also a big thing. And we've done multiple podcasts on sleeping and the importance of sleep. So I'm not really going to beat a, bet, a dead horse here. But the biggest focus for you during sleep is going to be that slow wave stage in sleep. And this is an older article uh, published in the Journal of Psychiatry uh, Psychi Neuroscience. Um, this is from the 1990s. Uh, but that slow wave stage of sleep is where you're seeing the most response of growth hormone. And as you know, this makes sense because sleep is your body's time to restore itself. There's also a lot of studies on saunas. And there's one specifically I've got up right now that is a clinical trial. So pretty high level of evidence here. And they looked at 55 volunteers. So pretty good amount of people. And growth hormone levels were 142% higher while in a sauna. And this sauna was uh, anywhere from 80 to 120 degrees Celsius that they were using. So somewhere around that 170 to 200, 220 degree Fahrenheit mark. So essentially, while they were in the sauna, their growth hormone levels increased exponentially. They returned to normal afterwards. Again, that feedback loop. But if you're looking for a way to ramp up your growth hormone levels post-workout, sitting in a sauna for 20 to 30 minutes will certainly do that. Um, another thing, and we've done, I think we've done podcasts on stress management and recovery. Uh, I've certainly given multiple talks about stress um, to different groups of individuals, students, athletes, that sort of thing. But stress itself inhibits the release of growth hormone. The reason for this is stress triggers the release of another hormone called cortisol. Cortisol is the breakdown hormone for your body. It breaks down muscle, it breaks down fat, it breaks down pretty much anything that your body has to offer 
and uses it in the form of energy. So going back to our runner example, obviously if you've run enough, your body will secrete cortisol because it will help uh, to provide more fuel to keep you moving. So yeah, you might break down a little bit of muscle mass, you might break down a little bit of fat tissue, but if your goal is to keep running, then this is going to help you with that. Cortisol inhibits the release of growth hormone from your anterior pituitary. So if you have high levels of stress and high levels of cortisol, you're going to have lower levels of growth hormone. So being able to relax and manage your stress is a key thing to improving your growth hormone levels and response. So whether that's yoga, sauna, deep breathing, uh, any kind of relaxation kind of thing will help you with that. There's also multiple studies on intermittent fasting and growth hormone secretion. And this is another one. I'm not going to beat that dead horse too much because a couple of weeks ago we released a whole podcast episode that looked at fasting in detail. But intermittent fasting is another one. Uh, most of the studies are in males. There's more work that needs to be done in females. Uh, that's true for a lot of things, unfortunately, when it comes to the scientific literature. Uh, but they are showing significant increases in growth hormone levels and androgen receptor density in healthy males in response to uh, prolonged periods of fasting. Um, from what they've shown, the same is true for females. But again, there's a lot more studies for males, so it's a lot easier to uh, draw those conclusions. So um, how... So we talked about increasing growth hormone and different things you can do, uh, especially the eccentric activity there. Uh, there are ways to decrease growth hormone, and there are things that you might be doing that decrease your growth hormone levels. And one of the biggest is high-carbohydrate diets, sugar uh, especially. So as you know, sugar can block the absorption of various vitamins and nutrients from your diet, and essentially cause micronutrient deficiencies, even if you're getting enough because of the effect of sugar. Sugar itself also increases your blood glucose level, as you know. So as you consume more carbohydrates and more sugar, the higher your blood glucose level will go. This increases your insulin levels, which, as you know, I've talked about that insulin to serotonin and melatonin shift before. I'm very big on that. But essentially, insulin also does this thing that blocks growth hormone production. So with that, you think about it, insulin is a storage hormone. Growth hormone is a mobilizing hormone. We want to mobilize fatty acids, for example, and use them as fuel. Growth hormone helps us do that. So they're kind of opposite one another. So if insulin levels are high, growth hormone levels are low. And I think that's a key mechanism behind why intermittent fasting could be so good for growth hormone levels. Uh, but with that, if you're someone who eats high carbohydrate diets very regularly, you're probably not going to see as good of a growth hormone response. And this can be good in some cases too. Maybe you're someone who's had too much growth hormone 
and you need to lower that a little bit. So maybe you've had too much tissue breakdown. Um, most people don't complain about too much muscle mass, but maybe maybe you're looking cha- looking to change your aesthetic, um, change your look, or maybe it's some kind of uh, physique competition or something like that, whatever. Um, that's where you can use the carbohydrate intake to your advantage. Uh, so... Obviously, it's helpful to know how to increase things, but it's also helpful to know how to decrease as well. Um, One other thing, too, I talked about most of the roles of growth hormone, but there's also other things, uh, other studies that show other benefits of growth hormone. Uh, So there's a lot of studies in animals, some in human now, uh, that show growth hormone can be cardioprotective. And to me, this makes a lot of sense because as we talked about, growth hormone helps our body recover and it helps to break down fat tissue. So the research seems to show that there's an inverse relation between the growth hormone levels in your body and your free fat mass or fat mass. So with that, it would make sense that growth hormone is cardioprotective because we know fat, body fat, that is, is bad for your heart. You know, omega-3 fatty acids from salmon and grass-fed, grass-finished meat, they're not going to be bad for your heart. That's not what I mean when I say fat is bad for your heart. I mean having a BMI of 50 is going to send your risk of cardiovascular disease through the roof as compared to someone with a BMI of 25 at healthy levels. Uh, As we know, muscle growth and recovery, but growth hormone also helps to protect the brain in some animal studies. Again, animal studies are not as strong as humans, But increased levels of growth hormone in one study actually showed improved neuron health, nervous system health, and development of nerves and enhanced neuroplasticity. Uh, This was published in a, I think it's the uh, development journal or journal of development. Uh, They're based in England and I'm not as familiar with the UK journals, even though I referenced one earlier on. Um, But essentially, this study from 2016 looked at rats because they are the typical lab rats, as we call them, and uh, they found all of those different uh, nervous system and neuroscience type of benefits to growth hormone. Uh, Growth hormone improves body composition, Uh, And the list goes on and on and on. So that's our take on growth hormone. Now on to our last bit on the ACL and woman. So again, as a male athlete and male who is into fitness and that sort of thing, I don't have a lot of personal experience with ACL injuries and estrogen. So I cannot speak uh, personally on this topic, uh, but we're going off of what the literature says here. So if you didn't know, the ACL, at least in females, has estrogen receptors within it. So this means the ligament 
is going to respond differently and change as a result of varied levels of estrogen in the body. Now, you wouldn't think that's a big deal, except females uh, throughout their life go through a lot of different fluctuations within with their uh, estrogen hormone levels. So this occurs on a monthly basis due to the menstrual cycle. This occurs on a lifetime basis due to things like menopause and that sort of thing. Um, so a lot of fluctuations there, right? So the first article we're looking at is from an athletic training journal, Journal of Athletic Training. Uh, this is from the 2000s. And they looked at 38 different female athletes. And they looked at these uh, 38 athletes over a three-year period. Okay, so a lot of data was collected here. And their main takeaway from this study was that a greater number of ACL injuries and pathologies occur on the first two days of the menstrual cycle, which correlates with the uh, estrogen levels on those reported cycle days. So the correlations they had between, they looked at different correlations uh, through different statistical tests and measures. Um, so they looked at correlation between saliva and estrogen and progesterone, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I'm not going to get too into the design here because I don't want to bore you with that. A lot of people, a lot of people said, you know, last week was kind of boring listening to, you know, this study, that study, that sort of thing. But essentially, uh, estrogen levels are, if you look at their uh, various figures they found that estrogen levels tend to be pretty low uh, around day one or two of the cycle. And they peak a little bit before day 14. Day 14 is when ovulation occurs. And they peak a few days before that. So clearly there's some kind of correlation there between the ACL and uh, estrogen. And again, the ACL has estrogen receptors. So the hormone can bind to those. It makes sense that there is some type of association there. Another study, and this one was more recent, this was published in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine in 2017, and this one is the effect of menstrual cycle and contraceptives on ACL injuries and laxity. And this is the highest level of evidence you can get because this is a meta-analysis and systematic review with level four evidence. So this is a very good study. And in their conclusion, they showed that the literature suggests an association between hormone fluctuations and ACL injury. Uh, there are some studies, and they even referenced this here, that uh, showed that oral contraceptive use may offer up to 20% reduced risk of injury. Now, they do come out and say, you know, the strength of this evidence is very low. There's not been a whole lot of long-term studies to look at that and that sort of thing. Um, but there is the belief anyways that oral contraceptive use uh, through estrogen can actually reduce the risk of injuring your ACL, which is pretty cool. Um, if you're 
uh, woman because, as we talked about, females are significantly more likely to injure their ACLs. And when you look at the research on ACL injury, a lot of people look at it and they say, oh, well, you know, no big deal. They've been doing that surgery for years. They'll just come right back. Everything will be fine. Uh, If you have ever had any kind of ACL injury or tear or, you know, you required a total reconstruction, so to speak, you know that's not always the case. Uh, The rehab process can be long and grueling, um, especially if you've got a physical therapist who's, you know, pushing you to make sure you get that full extension range back. Uh, It is very important, by the way. You really need to listen to your PTs, do your home exercise programs, a little plug for that real quick. But a large majority of people who injure their ACL do not return to their prior level of function and activity. Uh, Bigger still, a decent percentage never return to playing the sport that they were playing. And, you know, there's a lot of different types of graphs that they can use to repair the ACL. Um, I don't want to get too lost into the different things there like hamstring graphs and the advantages and disadvantages to each thing. Um, Obviously, the gold standard is your, uh, I think it's the bone patellar bone graft, which is essentially you have a bone plug on both sides um, of where they reconstruct their ACL, that sort of thing. Uh, there's a lot of different approaches they use, and there's advantages and disadvantages to each. But regardless, anytime you have a major surgery like that on a key athletic body structure, such as your knee, your chances of returning to the same level of play and function are lower than someone who, you know, is healthy and has never had that kind of injury or pathology. Uh, And there's also the risk of scar tissue buildup. Um, You know, I've seen a lot of people too, who they never regained their full extension range. And now their knee uh, is kind of slightly flexed all the time. You know, they can get to five degrees. uh, They run from a five to 135 degree angle. So they can't get full extension. And obviously that's going to impact your ability to do things that require knee extension, such as a squat or uh, other athletic activities like that. Jumping, uh, landing, cutting, that sort of thing. So the reason I bring this up too is, as you know, I have talked about this a few different times. I don't think that high school sports coaches and physical education teachers and uh, the travel team coaches have enough knowledge of this sort of thing to be accurately informing their athletes. You know, I don't, I've talked with multiple female athletes about this before and they're always mind blown when I tell them that there's links between their ACL and estrogen and their menstrual cycle because they've never heard that before. And what they said is, you know, if I had known that, I might, you know, scale it back a little bit in practice on day one or day two of the cycle there just to kind of help reduce my risk of injury, let my body stay healthy, recover, that sort of thing. And obviously, if you get injured, you wouldn't want it to be during, you know, just a practice, that sort of thing. Um, So I think this is a key hot topic issue that is getting ignored for the most part. 
uh, by sports and the sports world that needs a little more attention. Because again, if you can reduce the risk of injury for someone by, you know, we looked at the literature there by at least 20%, that's pretty significant. And if you reduce the risk of injury by 20%, think of how many less ACL tears, how many less ACL reconstructions you're doing on a yearly basis. We said 400,000 a year. What if that number was 350,000 a year? Or we'll even go more than that. What if it was just 375, 380,000 a year? What if we reduce that number by 20,000? That's 20,000 more athletes that are continuing to improve and get better and maintain their current level of function and maintain a high level of play. That's 20,000 ACL reconstruction uh, surgeries that we just cut from our annual healthcare expenditure. As you know, healthcare is a big uh, money business in America. And I say the term business because it is very lucrative. I don't know what the current cost of a ACL reconstruction surgery runs. I had bilateral inguinal hernia repair about a year ago. Actually, it is a year ago. Wow. A uh, year ago today when this, epi- when this episode airs. Uh, and that ran uh, somewhere around 40000 I think. Um, so obviously these things are expensive. And you know, luckily I had health insurance, good health insurance and that sort of thing. But not everyone has health insurance or not everyone has good health insurance, um, unfortunately. So things that we all need to be aware of. And, you know, with that too, uh, the world we live in is very divided right now on pretty much everything. So finding ways that we can unite together through health and fitness and, you know, promoting the common good uh, is essential, I think. And with that, that's going to conclude today's episode on COVID, growth hormone, and ACLs and estrogen. So again, very random mix. They're a little bit of a grab bag, but hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. Uh, Thank you as always for tuning in. If you like this episode, please feel free to like, subscribe, and share with a friend. And also make sure to follow us on social media at Braun Body, Braun with a W, and reach out to us for any of your health, fitness, and training needs. Thank you again.